We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate manage and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja, California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel, a podcast about all things rock art. Send us your suggestions. Hello and welcome to the Rock Art Podcast. This is episode 22. I'm Dr. Alan Garfinkel, your host, and this will be a little bit of a different one. I'm being interviewed by Chris Webster. This will be a Rock Art Podcast about adventures in the Eastern Mojave Desert in the National Mojave Preserve. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Rock Art Podcast. This is Chris Webster. You haven't heard me in a little while because Alan has been killing it on interviews, and it's been amazing, but we thought it was time because we actually missed a recording a couple weeks ago, our normal recording time. We record every week because Alan was out in the field, and we thought, well, let's just put a hold on the guest for a couple weeks and talk about where you went, what you did, what you saw, and just what came of that and what the field adventure was like. So, Alan, welcome back to your show. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, as we said just a few moments ago, this is seat of the pants ad lib, as you know it. <laughs> Hold on to your hats interaction about the recent adventure in the eastern Mojave Desert of the California jurisdiction and cultural resources management. It's just exciting. It's an adventure. 
Yeah. Yeah, indeed. And I think some people use different methods to escape their normal lives. I think people like us, scientists, we use stuff like this. I'm saying that because the election results for the president of the United States are literally rolling in as we're speaking here. So <laughs> Alan and I said, let's just record a podcast. I was just handed a glass of wine and I've got intelligent conversations. So let's, you know, buckle in, <laughs> get yeah, this bu- thing buckle going. Up and we'll do something that is productive <laughs> and a lot of fun. Well, that's right. That's right. So the backdrop of this, if I'm going to sort of contextualize it yeah is as the president and founder of the california rock art foundation we also have a division of our company that does contracts and contracts meaning cultural resources management we really specialize in doing i guess you call it national register nominations or rock art studies or those situations where our expertise is tailor-made to the particular requirements of a procurement. And, and c- certainly because we're a, a nonprofit and we have volunteers, we can compete sometimes more cost-effectively than perhaps a mm-hmm. conventional company. So I guess that's good and bad. Yeah. It's good for us. It's bad for everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) Well, some people listening to this that might be archaeologists themselves might be wondering, how could a not-for-profit company do CRM? But actually, my second project ever was a massive excavation in downtown Miami, Florida, and it was a nonprofit company that was running that, the Archaeological Conservancy down there. So yeah, yeah, they were running that excavation. We were on it for, I was on it for about seven months, six, seven months, but it was going on for, I think a year total. I mean, it was a massive, massive undertaking. So definitely not out of the realm of possibility. So, so what brought you to this project and where, where in the world was it? So there's, there's two projects that we have and they're, they're rather massive in the sense that one of the areas in California that has been reserved or preserved from development is the Eastern Mojave Desert. Where's the Eastern Mojave Desert, Alan? It's south of Baker, (laughs) south of Barstow. It's there in a particular area that's, oh, what would I say? Maybe 5,000 feet above mean sea level. Yeah. It is an area that is just absolutely spectacular. It is upper desert. So it's it's the Mojave Desert, but the elevation and the circumstances are such that you think of desert with no plants, but this desert is covered with plants. It's lush yeah. and it's a veritable outdoor laboratory. And in this area, they have reserved or preserved 1 million acres, 1 million acres And it's called the National Mojave Preserve. And it's sort of sandwiched between two different arterials. It's Highway 15 to the north and some other highway to the south. It's right in that eastern Mojave area. Mm -hmm. Historically, the native people that lived there were the Chemehuevi, who are Southern Paiute speakers, and the folks that roamed through there as well were the Mojave, who are along the Colorado They were a little bit different. They were agriculturalists. And these were the trader travelers who trekked literally across the the entire California desert and hiked all the way through to the Chumash on the coast in a two-week trek. They were called the Mojave Runners or the Mojave Trader Travelers. And you think of California, but these were agriculturalists. And this was a rather uh, sociopolitically complex group 
So those were the major cultures. Well, besides that, there was a tremendous amount of mining that went on in this area as well. Gold mining, silver mining, and other mining. And so within the boundaries of this National Mojave Preserve are hundreds or even thousands of cultural resources, archaeological sites, both prehistoric and historic. And for the million acres that are being managed, they have two archaeologists. Count them. One, two. (laughs) Sounds typical. Yeah. So from time to time, they might need some help. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. So they contract out and they ask cultural resource management firms to consider helping them. What do they need help for? Well, they need to manage these resources. A lot of them have not been properly inventoried or cataloged or described. And certainly many of them would be obviously eligible for the National Register of Historic Places, which of course is sort of the catalog of the best and most significant sites and districts all over our nation, Mm -hmm. but they haven't done that. They just don't have the staff. They don't have the the bandwidth, the time, the expertise, or anything to do those things that they really need to do without help. So fortunately, we partnered with a conventional environmental firm because they have the infrastructure and the administrative work. And so there's an environmental firm that we partner with. And because we do, we partnered with a number of them. But anyways, we partnered with this one. We were fairly strategic and we were careful on how we developed our proposals, both cost effectively and based on our expertise. And right now, just honestly and ethically and responsibly, what I would say about the conduct of cultural resource management, it's the most ruthless and cost competitive environment I've ever seen in my 40 or 50 years worth of working. And it's because of COVID. Have you found the same thing? Uh, A little bit, a little bit. I have a a little different work situation. (laughs) But yes, yeah, I've definitely heard the same thing. People are scrambling for work. Right. And with 15% or 30% of the populace of our nation out of work, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody wants something and they'll do it for nothing or they'll do it just to keep their doors open. Correct. Well, and the the odd thing is that's like status quo for CRM in general, right? Even outside of a pandemic, people are scrambling for projects, trying to make payroll and, you know, 15, 20% of the qualified field technicians and otherwise other people that do this job are out of work. I mean, that's just standard for us, but then you throw a pandemic on top of that and it's just chaos. So, right. Because we couldn't even start the field season until things started to kind of open back up. I mean, a lot of archaeology jobs were deemed essential because they're working on, you know, infrastructure projects, things like that. Like, for example, I was working with you out in China Lake. Yeah. Yep. When California shut down, <laughs> but we were still somewhat essential because we were finishing up this project on a military base. And that's deemed, you know, part of national security, basically. So. Right. So including that with one of the more interesting episodes of what's going on with us is one of the areas, of course, that's my greatest expertise is doing work in the Coso range. Well, this China Lake Naval Weapons Center, right? Besides COVID has had uh, several other interesting experiences recently. And what might those Mm -hmm. be, Alan? 
Well, one was a 7.1 earthquake. Yeah. That caused about anywhere between five and eight billion dollars worth of damage <laughs> to the base. Yeah. Yeah. Not insignificant. <laughs> right. Well, something I just learned, what, a week or two ago, they also had a major fire go through their uh, north base. So, and they haven't done anything by way of follow up. So there's all of that on top of that. So, but what happened was, is we were, we were keen and we won two contracts. One was to evaluate and nominate, I think it's four different National Register quality world-class rock art sites to Hmm. the National Register of Historic Places. And so we had a team out there, out in the eastern Mojave Desert. We went to a place called Hole in the Wall. Yep. (laughs) Yep. And and out in Hole in the Wall, we went there and I spent some time there with my right-hand man who's a consummate field archaeologist. And so I was there and I slept in a tent. He was kind enough to give me a place in a tent. <laughs> and we had we had the most incredible windstorm I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> it was going to tear the doors off of any vehicle and it tore up the fence and it tore up the tent. And all night long, it blew at, at what was it? I think it was 70 to 90 miles per hour at least. Jeez. And, it, and, it, and it went for 12 hours. Wow. Continuous. Sounds fun. <laughs> that was my introduction to the Eastern Mojave Desert and the National Mojave <laughs> Preserve. I said, someone is mad at us. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into that and, and, and what you guys are doing at it, probably in segment two. But I want to step it back for a second. Can you tell everybody a little bit more about, I guess, the National Register of Historic Places and, and what it would take to nominate something? What does it mean to be included in the National Register of Historic Places? What kind of site does this take and what, what's involved in that process? Okay. So throughout my life, I have nominated archaeological sites and areas, both individual sites and districts to the National Register of Historic Places. And that is sort of the the gold standard for archaeological or cultural resources. These are the properties that contribute to our understanding of the past, or they have profiled or had people who have been important in in the development and the chapters and the themes of our history or prehistory. Well, one of the first things I did as a little baby archaeologist way back on my first project, literally, in Crowder Canyon, the Transverse Ranges, Cajon Pass. I was there for two seasons, and I worked on a half a dozen different sites with the San Marino County Museum. And it was salvage archaeology. We, we did our analysis there in the field. And at the end of that chapter, people told me, you know, we need this to put on the National Register. I says, okay, I'll do it. So I wrote the National Register nomination. I described it, gave him a map, and it was listed. (laughs) I swear, that's how how simple it was. Now, this is, of course, maybe 45 years ago or so. That was the simple times. Moving forward, when I was in grad school, they hired me, right, as Mm -hmm. an intern and paid me. I think I've told you this before. 
And I worked at Little Lake and Fossil Falls, which is just north of Little Lake, for the Bureau of Land Management. And they told me I had to also nominate the property to the National Register. (laughs) So I walked around and documented all these sites. The thing was just one enormous archaeological site. Whenever you stepped, there was flake scatters and rock rings and caves and rock art and milling slicks and bedrock mortars and village sites and more rock art. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, literally in this area, and you, you may have been to Little Lake at one time. Were you not, uh, Chris Webster? Uh, No, I've been by Little Lake, but I've never been in the site. Okay. So there is a site called the Stall Site that... Wherever you step, it's a pavement. Literally, you cannot step anywhere without stepping on artifacts. Wow. It's a pavement of artifactual remains all around the archaeology to this very day. Nice. So what I had to do was I had to walk and conduct and copy and then write up the nomination, which I did. And then you submit it to the State Historic Preservation Office. They look at it. They send it back. (laughs) They say, you didn't use the right form. You have to, you know, give us better locational information, right? Right. The locational information is critical. You have to give the property information, which parts are private, who owns this, who owns that, identify their names and addresses, their telephone numbers. You got to give them all the, the, the information in detail. They'll come back and say, well, you didn't defend it properly. You need to give me a persuasive and substantive argument, really defending why this is a first-class, world-class site that has tremendous significance and impact and relevance from the research standpoint, from the standpoint of themes of archaeological importance, from the themes of history, or from the themes of certain key figures that have that have shaped our nation, etc. Mm-hmm. And that's what you do. So a lot of it is, is sort of as an analytical exercise, if you get my drift. Yeah, absolutely. No, have you ever done it? I have been part of nominations before, but I've never written one up myself. So I know what elements go into it. Okay. And helped out with that. But yeah, no, I've never had the pleasure of writing one up myself. I know for architectural resources and things like that, it can be extensive because you have to prove it. You have to prove that it's nationally significant and not just locally significant. So, all right. Well, given that introduction, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about what you guys recorded to justify listing the sites that you visited on the National Register of Historic Places. Back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com and use the code ROCKART. 
Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to Paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on pricing and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode. Welcome back to episode 22 of the Rock Art Podcast. This is Chris Webster, and I'm interviewing Dr. Garfinkel today about your recent trip to the Eastern Mojave. So we talked about National Register nominations and what that entails, what you have to do to actually make one of those. So before we get to what you guys were recording out there, because you already told us about the high winds and the camping, but Alan, I want to know about the trek out there from the car to where you went. How was that? (laughs) Well, I hadn't been back there in probably 40 or 50 years. And it was amazing. It just, you drive and drive and drive and drive and drive. And you're going, where are we? You know, we're in the (laughs) middle of nowhere. Am I ever going to get to anything? The only way I I get anywhere is I ask, I ask Siri. (laughs) And I I tell her where I'm going and I hope and pray that she doesn't run me off of the road or go across a cliff, which, which has happened on GPS. You know, they call it death by GPS, right? I'm sure of it. Yeah. Yeah. So she's been pretty good to me and hasn't, hasn't, you know, gotten me into too many fixes, but no, I, I get scared a little bit and a little nervous because I, you know, it, it's hilarious in terms of getting places these days. This is another anecdote. Of course, mm-hmm. I was doing some background research for a project for an environmental firm and I had to go out to a Naval base connect and I asked Siri and she sent me, of course, in an, in an area, the most direct route, which of course went through another area, which was a naval base that I wasn't supposed to go through. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked them, I said, well, I don't know how to go there because we're using Siri. She said, well, you're allowed one entrance through the base each year. <laughs> really? I said, okay. Yes. That's what they said. I said, okay, let me in. So, so I drove through there, got me to the base and I figured, Hmm, I don't think it's smart to go back through the base. I did that once and I'm going to try to go around. <laughs> so I tried to go around this base and I got lost. I didn't know where I was. I literally got lost. And then I checked my GPS and guess what? There was no satellite service where I was. <laughs> so what do you do then? No satellite service, lost. And I'm on a back road, right? <laughs> I mean, there's no cars. It's a back road. Yeah. You've seen when the grass grows over the road. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's an indication that that road is not well traveled. (laughs) No, I've seen Mad Max. That's where you were. (laughs) The the apocalypse has reached those roads. Right. (laughs) So I said, well, okay, just calm down, Alan. Don't get don't get nervous and don't get crazy. You know, this is this too shall pass. And I said, you know, what would the frontiersmen do in this particular predicament? Well, I looked Mm -hmm. at the roads that were available to me and I said, this one doesn't seem to be used as much. And if you looked at at the edge of the road here, I think you can see this one has at least been traversed (laughs) once or twice. I'm going to go down Mm -hmm. that road and every time I have another option, I'm just going to travel back on that thoroughfare that seems to be well-traveled 
and probably at some point I'm going to find civilization <laughs> again. So the first civilization I get to was a mailman. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and I, I went to the mailman and I said, you know, where am I? <laughs> and he says, well, you're right where you are. <laughs> and I said, well, there's no satellite service. He says, nope, no satellite service here. <laughs> And I said, can you help me get back to the main road? Says, yeah, just keep going on this other road about as far as you can. And when you dead end, hang a right. <laughs> and that's exactly what I said. I did that and I got out. But it was hilarious. Nice. Absolutely hilarious. That's the way I felt going into the National Mojave Preserve. You go along this road and you go from paved road to dirt road. And then you go from dirt road to worse dirt road. And then you go to dirt road to almost no road. And then you get to hole in the wall <laughs> where we camped. Mm -hmm. Nice. So has anyone else had any kind of parallel experience? Chris Webster. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I have been in the Eastern Mojave in areas. I have been in the, uh, you know, China Lake area. There were some places on the China Lake Naval Station where we actually lost radio contact. And you're supposed to be in radio <laughs> contact all the time. Yeah, there's no cell service, but there are places where we lost radio contact and we're like, you know what? If something happens out here, this is where it ends. <laughs> like we're not we're not leaving. Like this is this is where it's going to be. And uh I know exactly what you're talking about. We've been in places like that up in like the Great Basin too. Oh yeah. Yeah, you have to have two spare tires because chances are you're going to blow a tire. Two spare tires. Oh, you have to have two. We had to have two on China Lake. Yeah, because if you blow a tire, you still need another spare because there's a good chance you're going to blow an additional tire. And oh my word. so when you blow that first one, you start heading back home just in case, you know, you blow Second. another one. So oh my word. I don't know how many flat tires we went through. And, and if we didn't have two spares, we probably repaired a tire once every 10 day session, to be honest, um, <laughs> over the two Man. vehicles. Yeah, it was a lot of tire repair costs on that project. <laughs> And when you're out there, yeah, you're far away. You're like, oh yeah, out. Well, and the but the thing is, you know, when you're leaving like Highway 395 or some of those southern yeah. eastern California highways, it actually doesn't take far to get off what looks like a main no. road with other traffic before you're literally in the middle of nowhere, right? Like you could right. go over a hill, lose cell service, and you're on a road that no one has traveled on for the last five years, right? So you know, it's really fast that it happens. And people die regularly in Death Valley all the time. They think, oh, it's mm -hmm. beautiful. And, oh, look at all these pretty flowers. And maybe I'll just, you know, just take a little walk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? Oh, it's a national park. Somebody will be out here, right? No. Yeah, right. There, it's a national yeah. park. And I'll, I'm sure I'll find a ranger around the corner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's two rangers for all million acres of Death Valley National Park, right? Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. So, no. so you guys finally made it out there. Now let's talk about the site. Were you recording Hole in the Wall or was that just kind of like a starting point? Hole in the Wall was the starting point. That was the campsite. There's lots of people that are camping out there, even during COVID. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's you know, it's a nice place and it's a getaway and it's beautiful. And the, the particular landforms are impressive. And if they want quiet and nature, et cetera, et cetera, it's there. But the site was one of the most interesting sites I think I've ever seen in my life. It had, well, first of all, so you go around the corner, literally not very far away at all from this hole in the wall mm -hmm. area. You're going up a drainage and around the corner 
And then at the end of this dead end drainage, you see a little rock shelter. Not too big. You can maybe, I don't even think you can, you can stand up in it, but barely. Okay. And in that rock shelter, the name of the place that's been given to it is Mary's Cave. (laughs) I've heard you talk about that before. And it's been called Mary's Cave for decades, many, many decades. So what was Mary's Cave famous for? Well, one thing it's famous for is on the roof of the cave is a multicolored, what would you call it? Mural, cosmic mural showing stars and comets and suns and every other kind of sort of ambient celestial phenomenon all over the roof of the cave, which is amazing. Really? Absolutely. No phantom, no exaggeration, no hyperbole. It is phenomenal. There are natural holes in that cave and they're ringed in red, turning those holes into starbursts with points surrounding them. So just being in the cave is, is, I would say, somewhat supernatural. We always try to interpret rock art and, you know, petrographs and, and petroglyphs. We always try to interpret what the artist was trying to do or, the, or really the person. We say artist a lot of times because to us, we call it even rock art. But a lot of times it was communication or it was, you know, trying to transmit an idea or, or do some sort of ritual or something like that. But the way you're describing that, it really does sound like almost an artistic expression. Right. And, and in fact, when I, when I nominated it, the feedback that I got from the State Historic Preservation Office was, Alan, you have to write a section on art. <laughs> I <laughs> right? said, I have to write a section on art? Give me a break. I'm an archaeologist. <laughs> I mean, you tell me usually that that's rather subjective. And I thought you wanted something objective and research and defensible. They said, no, you must do a section, <laughs> a whole section on art and the artistry and nominate it for the artistic realm. Okay, I'll yeah. write about art. But that, that did surprise me. That was one of the critical things that I got back in feedback. Alan, you must write about the art. It must, it must also be nominated on the basis of art. So that's yeah. one thing. So picture a small rock shelter covered in multicolored paintings, the entire roof and the back wall is literally completely filled with pigment and paintings and a celestial symbols. I mean, without exaggeration, probably about 50 or a hundred individual symbols, but that's not all. We haven't stopped selling yet. (laughs) (laughs) On the floor of the cave, is 50 individual cupules, okay? Little pits, and they're all over the cave as well. If you know what a cupule is, a cupule boulder petroglyph, it's one of the oldest styles of rock art. It also is associated often with fertility or increased rights or rainmaking or the ability to, to birth babies. The baby rocks, they, they're called amongst the pomo. So there's that. Besides that, there were several trough-shaped matates, literally. They were deep, deep, deep trough bedrock matates embedded into the floor of the rock garden. So Mm -hmm. all of that was extraordinary. It's interesting. I've never seen a 
concatenation, a conflation, a co-occurrence of such unusual and distinctive rock art features. There were petroglyphs on the floor. There were pictographs on the wall that were somewhat representational. There were anthropomorphs, beings, you know, super mundane beings that were there as well. And all of this, and also on the floor were some of these red ringed holes that were some of these as well. So all of that is interesting, but it gets better. (laughs) Right? Not through selling yet. All right? So when they discovered this site, this guy by the name of Rafter, that's his last name, John Rafter, Mm -hmm. and he said, you know what? I think this has to do with um, something with the cosmos. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's enough stars and suns and other things on the ceiling. And this just strikes me as some sort of a, you know, a cosmic place. I I bet they could be doing something in the archaeoastronomical realm here. And what the heck is that, Alan? What's what's archaeoastronomy, Professor Webster? You can tell him. Hey, I know because I listened to the Rock Art Podcast, and we talked about archaeoastronomy. <laughs> You're hilarious. <laughs> actually, one of the earlier books I, I ever bought on archaeology was actually on archaeoastronomy because I was so fascinated by it. And archaeoastronomy right, right. is the the representation or the almost the marriage of you know geographic or rock art features on the ground with astronomical features in the sky, either representing them or interacting with them in some way. In in the case of say like a rock feature that's designed to you know hold the setting sun on the solstice or something like that. Okay, so you're you're bang on. So this guy John Rafter <laughs> writes this little bitty article back in like 1985, and he says, you know what mm-hmm. I found? I was here in the winter solstice and the summer solstice and this and that and the other thing. And I found that if you're inside the cave and looking at the horizon, you can predict the summer solstice sunrise because it comes exactly in this notch on the horizon. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what they were doing here, that this was part of their cosmology to identify the summer solstice sunrise and look at it here in this cave. Hmm. Well, you know, that could be coincidence, right? Sure. People have critiqued this. Well, guess what? (laughs) (laughs) A professional astronomer from the University of California, Santa Cruz, spent 20 years studying that rock shelter Mm. and published a book that runs over 600 pages long demonstrating that that's exactly what's going on. I mean, you don't find people doing stuff like that. It's, it's so uncommon. It's, it's crazy. It's probably once in a million years you're going to run across that. But he studied it to the nth degree and told us that this only could have happened during this particular chapter in prehistory. He evaluated the alignment, and he was there over those 20 years and said, this is probably the most distinctive and well-studied uh, and substantive site for that kind of interaction. Yeah. It's always amazing to me, just to, to tidy up this section here real quick. It's always amazing to me when you see 
either archaeoastronomy or, or geographic features based on the solstice, right? Based on the 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 furthest north or or whatever point of the sun, you know that that you can find. Because I'll tell you what, most people in this day and age, if you if the solstice wasn't marked on the calendar, they don't even know. Yeah, we wouldn't know, right? They have no idea. And to be able to year after year notice. We always apply the words prehistoric and primitive to native peoples and to indigenous peoples around the world. And yet to have the ability to notice that time and to nail it down with, with something that you can construct and, and get it is just phenomenal to me. That, that awareness of your surroundings and that awareness of your just where you are and what's going on in the world around you is phenomenal. And they got it right every time. So it had to be an area that they had had ritual and ceremony. And what also happened was mm-hmm. because of the distinctive configuration of the horizon, they would know several days in advance that that was coming sure. because of where the where the sun was was sort of set in its niche. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that is good for segment two. Let's come back in segment three and wrap up this podcast and your travels out to the Eastern Mojave. Back in a minute. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 22, segment three. And we are going to wrap up this discussion with Dr. Alan Garfinkel on his travels to the Eastern Mojave. So you talked about Mary's Cave in the last segment. I actually tried to look that up. We might try to link to some resources because there are lots of things around the world called Mary's Cave, apparently. And a quick Google search doesn't yield very many results. I did see some of the cupules in some of the pictures, and, and that was fascinating that I saw on there. As a side note, one of the earliest comments we got on this podcast through, I can't even remember where it was. I think it was Facebook or something like that, was one of our, our biggest fans of the Archaeology Podcast Network. I'll just say Amy, her first name. And she requested an episode on cupules because she's fascinated by cupules. And so we need to have an episode where we get a cupule expert on, or you just <laughs> pontificate on cupules for an hour, Alan, whatever you want to do. <laughs> oh my word. And we talk about cupules and what they could mean. We got to do the cupules story. Because yeah, Donna and Linda talked about cupules a little bit. They did, they did. In the discussion of PCNs. Yeah, but we need to focus an episode on it. But you know what, Chris? Hmm. We haven't even scratched the surface. <laughs> Is that a rock art joke? That's a rock art joke. (laughs) Nice, nice. We haven't even pecked the surface of the cupule. We haven't even probed the surface. We (laughs) We have not even ensconced suitably on the landscape. God bless you. Wow, wow. So let me drop the third and most interesting bonus. Okay, what did I say the site was called? Mary's Cave. Okay, why do they call it Mary's Cave? Who's Mary? Uh, I don't. I don't know. I don't think we got there. They also call it Mary's Bedroom. Oh my! Why'd they call it Mary's Bedroom? Well, the local lore, the legend, and the associated oral history of this location is that at the turn of the century in the 1900s, Mary Kennedy and her husband were stuck in a snowstorm, and they had to pull off of their wagon. And Mary had to give birth to her child. Wow. And below the cave, they supposedly took up in a 
rock shelter and covered it up. And Mary birthed her baby with the help of her husband. Hmm. Well, that's an interesting story, but is it true? Well, guess what? Yeah. We found the rock shelter with the nail holes and the nails and the places exactly as described in the literature and the mythology. Really? And so we know precisely it's perfectly preserved right there below the shelter. It's an area that has sort of a two different rocks. And right there in the middle was where Mary gave birth to her child. They had a tarp that they hung on to, to cover it. And so there's the original nails are pecked into the stone from the 1900s. Wow. And we know it, we know it's exactly there. It's, it's the whole thing is set up exactly the way it was described in the oral history and the traditional stories. And we heard this Hmm. from a local rancher who specifically knows the story. And I believe the one piece of the puzzle, the mystery is I don't know the name of the child that was born in that rock shelter. Yeah, because I was thinking, I mean, does that child have children which would be alive today? Right, right. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, talk about yeah. link, linking historic Euro-American. It's all about <laughs> fertility. The whole thing is fertility. What's going on? You've got the cosmic renewal. you got the cupules. you got this, you got that. One of the things, the archaeologist who was there and other people have said that Mary's Cave is a female site. It's about female fertility. It's about renewal. It's about increased rights. It's about this. It's about that. When we were out there, we uh, hired some professional astral photographers. What's an astral photographer, Alan? Well, what we did was we had German Cervera and Tom Natow, who are some of those rare birds that specialize in taking pictures of the night sky and certain celestial elements in association with rock art sites. Okay. Well, how the heck did they do that? Well, they have to have a special machine on their photographic instrument so it can track the movements of the stars and move along with them so it doesn't have, doesn't have those fading things. So it, so it moves with the movement of the sky. And then it has a, you know, you, you take a long version of it and they can take a whole picture of the Milky Way just as it is in the sky and as it's branching above the shelter, which is what we did. And that turned out phenomenal. Yeah. And, and I know about that and astrophotography because you I do? listen to the rock art podcast. Now. <laughs> yeah. because <laughs> If this is the first time you've heard this show, German Severa was on an episode of the rock art podcast in the last couple of months here. And we're going to link to that in the show notes. So go listen. Yeah, because the the one thing that I learned in that, that I, because I'd known, you know, about astronomers taking these long form shots, but I always kind of wondered how they got those galaxy shots without the blur. I figured they must be tracking it somehow, but I wasn't exactly sure how. And that's exactly what he did. He's got a tracker on the camera rig system that actually follows the motion of the stars. And that's why you don't get the blur because you need to hold that lens open for several minutes. Yeah. And I I just... I had no idea that it was that complicated. No. Yeah, me either. You can only shoot at certain times of the year. You can only shoot at certain times of the night. So you got to get 
that done. And then you have to have exactly the right kind of camera that tracks it. And then it has to be configured such that you even can see this in association with the rock art, because sometimes the uh, constellations don't cooperate. Right, right. And if you're trying to shoot the Milky Way, I mean, that is the center of our galaxy, right? That's what the Milky Way technically is. I mean, we're the Milky Way galaxy, but if you're shooting the Milky Way, what you're saying is you're shooting the center of our galaxy and, and that brightness that is there. But it's it's only bright to the camera lens, right? Not to the naked eyes. So you have right. to be, the, the earth has to be in the right position around the sun and the earth has to be positioned correctly too, to be able to actually look down the barrel of that Milky Way gun and then do it with the camera. And believe it or not, German and Tom were there at the right time of year, at the right time of night. Nice. And I was there with them, and it was hilarious. They told me, get inside the cave and turn on your <laughs> iPhone. Turn the light on so you can see the cave. Okay. Now sit in the cave and let us take pictures. <laughs> Just sit there, please. Right? <laughs> and it's, it's pitch dark. Pitch dark, right? We're in the middle of the night, and we're taking pictures of this cave, with my iPhone on the light for my iPhone and he's doing all this and he has to hike up this little, yeah. little drainage and then he drops his camera. Oh, literally, he literally dropped his, his, you know, multi-thousand dollar camera. I said, well, I hope it doesn't break. And, and so he found his camera, then he had to put it on a special machine and then had to shoot it, but he shot it. It worked out. It was, it was incredible. But, it, you know, the, the, the whole configuration is hilarious. Right next to Mary's Cave is a natural tank. It's called a Tanaha. And it probably is one of the largest ones I've ever seen. It's a water entrapment feature that is natural hmm. that would probably save hundreds or even thousands of gallons of water because it's so enormous. I'd never seen one that large. And there it was right next to the cave, the rock shelter, Mary's hmm. Cave. And just above... Mary Kennedy's birthing site right there below. <laughs> wow. It's hilarious. So we had this whole configuration. So what I had to do to nominate this site is both weave the story, but also include all of the research and all the publications and all of the information that we have about the history, the prehistory, the archaeoastronomy, the natural vegetation, the cultural canopy, the landforms, everything has to be in there. And it has to be done in a way that produces a compelling argument for the significance of the site. Not so easy. Mm -hmm. you know, the thing that gets me is this site has been studied for decades, written about for decades. Volumes have been written about this site, and yet it has never been nominated no. to the National Register? Nobody bothered it. We think we have all these protections from things. We think we have all these resources. You know, people talk about big government and doing everything. But you know what? People are just humans and nobody ever got around to it. <laughs> and it's just phenomenal. You well, know? And I think many of probably even the most significant sites that exist have not been formally recognized in a way because it takes it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of research. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the bar for doing this kind of work keeps going up each year. They've becoming more critical. They're more interested in trying to get the precise locations and making sure that the political geography allows for this because if there's private land or if there's public land or this land or that land, you know, you get into some sort of machinations regarding access and eligibility and what is this going to do to the private land and the private people that are nearby. All that stuff comes into play. Everything's political now. So- right. You have to be very cautious and very careful and da-da-da-da-da. So 
In the next five or six minutes that we have remaining on this segment, I'll talk about the uh, death march. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> the death march. Sounds great. The death march. <laughs> right. So my colleague, Ryan, decided that it would be suitable and, and prudent for us to at least visit the next site in the cycle of the four different sites. And we were going to go out to Cow Cove. And this was in July. And he was thinking that the, you know, it wouldn't be too bad because we would work either late morning or early evening when it was a little bit cooler. And so we had a lot of water with us and da 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 da. And because of this being a preserve, they've blocked all the roads. So many of these sites you have to walk in miles, mm-hmm. miles walking. Yeah. Con pie in, in Espanol. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, in the desert. I was there, Ryan was there, and so was our professional photographer. And, you know, I've walked in the desert, you know, and for miles and miles, and I'm in reasonably decent shape. And you have too, Chris Webster. Yeah, we have together. Yes. So, but in this National Mojave (laughs) Preserve, as I was noticing, the temperatures were rather extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. They were they were upwards of a hundred or more degrees. In fact, I think even in the late afternoon, I think they clocked it at about one hundred and three or one hundred and four. Oh my God! Yeah. And so we uh, sauntered out there, and by the time we walked a mile or two, we were near death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, even <laughs> Ryan and the photographer were dying. I mean, they were literally, they couldn't even hold themselves up. They were saying, I can't do this. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I don't care what kind of rock art is on these basalt boulders. I'm not working anymore. This is not working for me. I don't think I have yeah. the stamina or the energy or the person capacity to do this. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, we have to walk back now. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, there's no helicopter coming to get you. No, there's no, but there's no, no burros, no <laughs> mulas. And so we walked back and we barely made it back. The next day, everybody broke out in a heat rash from the top of our heads to the bottom of our feet. Yeah. And that's how bad it was. I mean, it was really, really bad. Have you ever had anything like I've come close to heat stroke before. That's about it, though. I, I got real close actually on the, one of those China Lake projects about, no, the El Centro project down in California, uh, Southern yes, California. Yes, yes, about. Yeah. Five years ago. Yeah. I was so close and I was glad we were close to the truck and I had a colleague with me that helped me recognize the signs and we got back and I just downed some Gatorade and some water and sat in the air conditioning and and let it subside. But I was another few minutes out there and I'd have been a goner. So what are the uh, idiosyncrasies for uh, heat stroke, doctor? Well, for that, you stop sweating first off. <laughs> yeah, you sweat everything out, right? Your skin almost right. gets clammy and cold to the touch and and you could start getting a headache. That's obviously that's one of the early signs is getting a headache. And if yeah. you start getting a headache, it means you're not drinking enough water. Exactly. It just proceeds from there. You start getting fatigue and I mean it's just I was I was really feeling it. I could barely put one foot in front of the other. And when I looked down and it was like hundred and five to hundred and ten degrees uh-huh. and I was not perspiring anymore anywhere on my body, not my arms, my head. You know, a lot of times in the desert it's dry anyway and you yeah. don't sweat a lot because it's so dry. Right. But we were hiking and hiking and hiking and there's always a little bit of sweat and I just stopped and 
Luckily, when I do survey, I try to do the farthest areas first and we work back towards the vehicle. So right. we were actually really close to the vehicle when I started to feel that. And we started early in the morning too, like, you know, five o'clock in the morning, right when the sun came up. And this was only probably 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, but I, it was already starting to get super hot. But you were drinking water the whole time. Oh yeah. The whole time, the whole time. It just wasn't enough. It was too much. The heat yeah. was too much. Yeah. I think she was probably close to it as well. Um, I was just, I was just farther along. Maybe I drink less water. I don't know what the deal was. We got different bodies and I, I have a much bigger frame than she does and probably required a lot more water. And I just didn't have enough. Same thing happened to me on a trip to little pet. Yeah. I was with two other people. I drank all their water. I drank all my water and I was still walking out. <laughs> it must've been like a hundred and something degrees. And by the time I got into a vehicle, I was a goner. I was, I was in heat prostration. Oh, yeah. And I was getting uh, muscle cramps and all of that. And no matter how much I drank, it didn't seem to affect it. So fortunately, I, you know, bounced back from that. But they say, I think once you get it, you can get it again easier. Well, I, I feel like, too, that you notice the signs now. So maybe you can get it again easier, but hopefully you notice the signs earlier and you can you can prevent it. Yeah. The sign is if you're on a death march, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the sign. Yeah. I mean, I know I'm on a death march when I've continued <laughs> hiking up and down and I've drank as much water as I can possibly drink and I feel like I'm, I'm near death. <laughs> I'm, having, I'm having a near-death nice. experience. I'm, I'm elevated from my body. I'm looking down from the cosmos and <laughs> I'm trying to commune with the celestial phenomenon. <laughs> Well, on that cheery <laughs> note, uh, <laughs> it's been a great conversation as usual. Why don't you give our listeners just a little taste of what's coming up in the next few episodes of the Rock Art Podcast? We've got a couple of other people slated coming up. We've got uh, Jeremy Freeman, who's going to be talking about his work with Native Americans in rock art. We have another individual who is part of the National Park Service, one of the key archaeologists of the Eastern Mojave Desert. And he's going to uh, talk about what it's like to be a cultural resource manager trying to deal with a million acres and hundreds, if not thousands, mm. of cultural resources. So I think that'll be rather interesting from the other side of the coin, don't you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, all right. Well, thanks everybody for listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Stay tuned for those fantastic episodes. I'm going to link to some of the episodes we've referred to here in the podcast so far. And if I can find a good link for Mary's Cave, I will do that so you don't have to go hunting around. And in the meantime, go listen to the back catalog. Check out all the wonderful episodes. We've had 22 of them, including this one so far. So you've got 21 other episodes to catch up on. And this comes out weekly on Fridays. Doctor, always a pleasure. And... We will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening, and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends.
This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.